0: In 2014, as she was beginning to reckon first with the grief and loss of the death of her husband, Gary, the artist and minister, Jan Richardson, wrote a poem. It's hard being wedded to the dead, she wrote. They make different claims, offer comforts that do not feel comfortable at the first. They do not let you remain numb Neither do they allow you to languish forever in your grief They will safeguard your sorrow But will not permit that it should become your new country Your home They knew you first in joy In delight And though they will be patient when you travel by other roads It is here that they wait for you Here they can be best found, where the river runs deep with gladness, and the water over each stone sings your unforgotten name. All Saints Day is a time for us to remember those that we have lost, to hold on to the hope that death is not the end, to cling to the belief that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and to acknowledge the claims that the dead still make on us. This week, as I looked over the list of the members who have died in the last year, I was humbled and awestruck by the tremendous impact these beloved people made on my life personally, and our church, and the world. Leaders like Todd Gere, John Bean, George Linney, Fran Kerr, Doug Aldrich, and Eleanor Brawley, just to name a few, gave of themselves so lovingly, so sacrificially, so generously that they transformed many of our lives and our community forever. Their stories will echo through time, and our love and gratitude for them will extend far beyond the grave. We know that no one will ever take their place But I wonder, will there be anyone willing to take up their mantle? Will anyone rise to advance the legacy of love and generosity that they laid out before us? Protestants have always had a love-hate relationship with the saints. It's likely the result of the fact many reformers of the church, like Luther and Calvin, denied the intercessory role that saints can play in our lives, and viewed the communion of saints not as a group set apart by their actions, but the name for everyone in the church. That's how we know that Luther and Calvin never spent time in a Baptist church. (laughs) Over the years, various Protestant groups have attempted to reclaim the practice of commemorating the saints, and yet this has led to some significant confusion. In the New Testament, the word saint is simply the name for all the baptized members of the church. Yet later in the days of Roman persecution, the word saint was a name for anyone who was martyred in the faith. When Christianity became the official religion of the empire, saint became an ecclesiastical title, granted through a process of canonization that involved a formal examination of a person's life. However, for many people today, our saints are simply our ancestors, those who lived before us and went on to be with God. So, what is a saint, really? In a novel entitled Beautiful Losers, the musician Leonard Cohen wrote A saint is someone who has achieved a remote human possibility. It is impossible to say what that possibility is. I think it has something to do with the energy of love. Contact with this energy results in the exercise of a kind of balance in the chaos of existence. A saint does not dissolve the chaos. If she did, the world would have changed long ago. I do not think a saint dissolves the chaos even for themselves for there is something arrogant and warlike in the notion of a person setting the universe in order. No, it is a kind of balance that is their glory. She rides the drifts like an escaped ski. Her course is the caress of a hill. Her track is a drawing of the snow in a moment of its particular arrangement with wind and rock. Something in her so loves the world that she gives herself to the laws of gravity and chance. Far from flying with the angels, she traces the fidelity of a seismograph needle, the state of a solid, bloody landscape. Her house is dangerous and finite, but she is at home in the world. She can love the shapes of human beings, the fine and twisted shapes of the heart. And it is good to have such people among us, such balancing monsters of love. According to Cohen, saintliness has something to do with the energy of love, of finding our place in the struggle of humanity, of giving ourselves generously to the world. And this is the same vision we see in the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, otherwise known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus proclaimed, Blessed are the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted this would have been incredibly alarming to the first century audience who heard it for the first time just as it is alarming to us during the presidency of 45 many pastors expressed that they couldn't even read the beatitudes without being called liberals and socialists by their congregation and that's because the beatitudes are a revolutionary countercultural statement of an upside down alternative reality of the kingdom of God. They are Jesus' value statement, which were a revolution of the values of the first and the 21st century world. We know, if we are honest, that if the Beatitudes were American, they would say something quite different. They would say, blessed are the rich, blessed are the calloused, blessed are the proud, Blessed are those who want for nothing. Blessed are the merciless. Blessed are the corrupt. Blessed are the war makers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of their injustice. But Jesus flip the values of the world on their head by proclaiming that the holy and the saintly and the blessed are not the rich and powerful comfortably numb corrupt rulers of the earth instead it's the people on the underside of history living with their backs against the wall the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed along with people who are engaged in solidarity with the poor's struggle for justice, mercy and peace people engaged in that struggle regardless of the sacrifice or the persecution that might come along with it. One of the people recently canonized by the Catholic Church as a saint is Oscar Romero, the Archbishop of San Salvador who was shot by an assassin in 1980 while presiding over communion. Romero once said, there are not two categories of people. There are not some people who were born to have everything and leave others with nothing a majority that has nothing and can't enjoy the happiness that God has created for all. God wants a beloved society in which we share the good things that God has given for all of us. Romero went on to say, Peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the result of violent repression. Peace, he said, is the tranquil contribution of all to the good of humanity. Peace is dynamism. Peace is generosity. We live in a world filled with poverty, mourning, hubris, hunger, thirst, ruthlessness, corruption, violence, and war. And in this world, it is often very hard to find any hope in the midst of so much violence and death. We ask ourselves, how can I live with faith and hope and love in this bleak and violent age? But that's what the saints have always been for. There's a reason that books about the lives of saints have been number one bestsellers countless times through history. There's a reason the church has a feast day celebrating at least one saint for every day of the calendar year. The stories of those who've been faithful and generous through different eras of human history have a power to embolden us to live faithful and generous lives ourselves. They encourage us. They inspire us. They fill us with hope. They give us strength. They show us what it means to follow Jesus no matter what our circumstances are or what's going on in the world that we live in. Saints remind us that people have faced hardship before and yet have always found ways to live lives of justice, mercy, peace, and generosity. A few years ago during my doctoral studies, I was assigned a book about the four women doctors of the Catholic Church. The four women, only four, unfortunately, that the Catholic Church has given the title of doctor. Hildegard of Bingen, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, and Therese of LaSalle. Now, as I looked at the book, it did not look like it was going to be a (laughs) page-turner. But as I read through the stories of these remarkable women, I noticed something similar about each of them. They had all lived during an extremely bleak time in history. Hildegard lives through the Dark Ages, the medieval times. Catherine ministered during the Black Plague, which wiped out two-thirds of Europe. Teresa lived during the horror of the Spanish Inquisition. And Therese ministered in France during a war with China and Vietnam. These women testify to the fact that we are not the first followers of Jesus to live in times of poverty and mourning and hubris and hunger and thirst and ruthlessness and corruption and violence and war. So there's no need for us to fall into the trap of despair. believe everything is hopeless, that there's nothing that we can do, because we're not the first. Many people have been here and come before us and shown us what it looks like to live lives of justice, love, peace, no matter what the circumstances are we face. One of the reasons I think we find ourselves in a crisis of hopelessness and despair is that our culture does not revere the saints, or venerate the ancestors, instead, we worship heroes. In 1841, the Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle coined the term hero worship. He meant that as a good thing. He defined hero worship as the high regard that us ordinary people should have for the great figures of history and their exceptional human achievements. Carlisle wrote that history is what great men have accomplished in the world. Everything we see standing is the outer material result and practical realization of the thoughts that dwell in the minds of great men. Carlisle's work is what gave us the great man theory of history and politics, which holds that certain exceptional individuals, primarily white men, have the charisma and the drive and the intellect... To influence the course of history and therefore should be revered. A related theory by Hegel holds that world historical individuals embody the spirit of the age, or as Nietzsche, who followed suit, said, God is dead, therefore the world needs an Übermensch, a Superman. From DC Comics to Marvel movies, to celebrities and presidential candidates, the cult of the hero is alive and well in America. But the problem with the great man theory is that it is the opposite of Jesus' beatitudes and antithetical to the church's belief in the communion of the saints. Jesus did not say, Blessed are the great men, the supermen, the ubermensch. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the merciful the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Hero worship is contradictory to the Beatitudes. And the key word in communion of the saints is communion. The great man theory is toxic individualism on steroids. It imagines one person with strength and ability is going to save us all while the rest of us are off the hook and don't have to do anything. Not to mention God is nowhere to be found. And yet the reality is that individualism is a lie, even in the afterlife, it seems. It's not the great men, but the great cloud of witnesses that is leaning over the balcony together, cheering us on to get through this life. The saints testify to the fact that it's going to take all of us working together, listening and laboring together as a community for collective liberation to come. We've been worshiping the great men of history for a long time, and it has not done much for us, for our world, for the church. The constant glorification of pilgrims and founding fathers, wilderness explorers and military heroes, Confederate generals, Wild West gunslingers, mobsters, presidents, politicians, athletes, and celebrities has not led to a society of justice, mercy, and peace. And that's because the great cloud of witnesses are not the great men of history. And we need to work to disentangle our remembrance of the communion of saints from the worship of heroes. Because who our saints are tell us a lot about what our values are, who we imagine ourselves to be, and what we're trying to become ourselves. Are we trying to become great men of history? Or are we trying to find ways to become like the freedom riders on the front of our order of worship today, who sacrificed everything, gave their lives generously for the cause of love and justice, even though most people will never know their names? There are times when even our relationship to Jesus becomes a kind of hero worship, when we transform Jesus into another great man of history and insist that he was fully God, fully divine. The reason we often do this is because it is easier to worship Christ than it is to follow Jesus. As Richard Rohr once said, Jesus said, follow me, but instead of following, we spend most of our energy worshiping him and then arguing about how to worship him. But Jesus never said, worship me. He said, follow me, which is an entirely different agenda. Worshiping is rather harmless and risk-free, but actually following Jesus, that changes everything. Last year, we were fortunate enough to have a matching gift for our Finish Strong campaign when a generous family in our church agreed to match every dollar that we received up to $40,000. It was a wonderful gift and a wildly successful campaign. Afterwards, I received a report with a list of every member who contributed to that campaign so that we could write thank you cards. And as I was going through the list, one name caught my eye. One of the people who gave to the matching gift campaign was someone that I know personally is living paycheck to paycheck and has almost nothing to spare. And yet I saw that they gave a gift to the campaign anyway. I was stunned by their generosity. I thought about the story of the widow's mite in the Gospels. Someone with almost nothing gave an extravagant gift to help our church. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if a poor member can give so much, there's no reason that the rest of us can't with all that we have. This kind of radical generosity rarely happens overnight. We don't snap our fingers and tomorrow become incredibly generous people. I would love nothing more if one of my stewardship sermons were so powerful that you would have a conversion experience today and feel compelled to give more radically and sacrificially, but I'm no fool. Radical generosity almost always develops over time because it's a disposition, it's a habit, a practice, Something that's often handed down from one generation to the other, from grandfather to mother and mother to son, from grandmother to father and father to daughter. It's the kind of behavior that's born in us from receiving generosity from others and the gratitude that blooms in response from that. It's something that grows and evolves inside of us over many years that eventually becomes an intense passion deep inside that must come out, that must be expressed through loving and cheerfully giving. On February 4th, 1968, two months to the day before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon in which he said, if any of you are around when I die, when I meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. If you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize or that I have 300 to 400 other awards. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. That's not important. I'd like somebody to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that I tried to love somebody. I want somebody to say that I tried to get right on the war question. I want somebody to be able to say I tried to feed the hungry, I tried to clothe the naked, I tried to visit those in prison. I want somebody to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. If you want to say I was a drum major for something, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace, a drum major for righteousness. He said, I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind, but I just want to help somebody and leave a committed life behind. If I do that, then my living will not be in vain. What will people say about us when our names are listed in the order of worship? Will they say that we were people of justice and mercy and peace? Will they say that we tried to love and serve humanity? Will they say that we were generous people? The world is trying to make all of us believe that the rich and the calloused and the proud and the hungry and the thirsty for injustice, the merciless, the corrupt, and the war makers are the ones who are blessed. But the church is invested in shaping each of us into people who believe that the poor and the mourning and the meek and the hungry, the thirsty and the merciful, the pure and the peacemakers and the persecuted are the ones who are truly blessed. Today, we remember the people that we lost with gratitude. We hold on to the hope that death is not the end. We cling to the belief that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and we acknowledge the claim that the dead still make on us. On this day, we do not remember the great men of history. We remember the great cloud of witnesses. We remember the legacy that people left for us, the challenge that they've offered to us, and the mantle of justice and mercy and peace that they called us all to carry. The saints will not allow us to be overwhelmed by the world that we live in. And they will not allow us to stop. They will not allow us to give up. They call out to us saying, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. We've been there too and we're with you now. Do justice today. Love mercy today. Walk humbly today. They call out to us saying, You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. The saints are the wind at our backs, the sun on our face, the music in our hearts, the sacred community cheering us on from the balcony, sending us courage and strength and hope for today and tomorrow and all the days that we live. They call out to us, Keep going. Keep moving forward, forever forward. They're calling out to us to continue the legacy of love that they laid out before us. And if we desire to honor them with our lives, then we must learn to find our place in the struggle of humanity and give ourselves generously to the world. Amen.